Turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, and we will continue where we left off last week, this Sermon on the Mount. If you will, join me um, once you find Matthew chapter 5, if you would stand in honor of the reading of the word. And we'll read tonight from verse 17 through verse 20. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for your word and for this moment in the middle of the week uh, as I think it was Spurgeon who called the Wednesday night prayer meeting uh, the, the meal between the Sunday feasts. And so, Lord, may you, by your word, as you said, you are the bread of life. May your word fill us, um, strengthen us the way that food gives us energy. May your word strengthen us Uh, for what is ahead, and may it satisfy us that we would not leave this place craving uh, something else, something different, but that we would leave this place grateful for the scriptures and all that they teach us, filled full with your word and thereby with you. So satisfy us, equip us, strengthen us, we beg of you, not for our sake, uh, but for the sake of your gospel being spread in and through uh, our lives. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Week two of the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount, famous collection um, It is a description of the lifestyle of those who belong to Jesus. Again, no part of this is evangelistic. It is evangelistic in nature, but Jesus is addressing his disciples. You'll notice verse 1, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. So those who were committed to him came to him. By way of context, we ought to remember that in chapter 4, Jesus began preaching, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And then the repentant, those who had turned from where they were going and in the opposite direction came to follow Jesus. It is those who are given this outline, chapters five through seven, of their new counter-cultural moral framework. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone listening to this sermon and the others like it were committed followers. There were always in the crowd, no doubt, listening and influencing the people for different groups. There were the traditionalists, the modernists, the political activists, and what I'm calling the Amish. Traditionalist, modernist, political activist, and Amish. And if you read the New Testament, you'll find these groups appearing again and again. The traditionalist is the Pharisee. Remember that it was the Pharisees who were criticized by Jesus for teaching as doctrine what? Traditions of men. As opposed to teaching doctrine that is doctrine, they were teaching as doctrine traditions. And in each case, we'll see Jesus challenges their sensibilities. Jesus challenged the Pharisee that true spirituality is internal, not external. It is a work of the heart, not the keeping of a tradition. Then there's the modernists. Those are the Sadducees. You might remember the Sadducees divide with the Pharisees over the matter of resurrection. It was the cause of debate. It was the cause of division. We see it in, I want to say, in Acts as well. The notion of a bodily resurrection was deeply ingrained in Jewish teaching and belief. So much so that the the half-Jewish heathen Samaritan woman at the well expressed a a confident... uh, Uh, a confident belief in the resurrection. She said, I know we will all worship in the resurrection, right? But the Sadducees, they were too modern, too sophisticated, too intellectual to believe in such fairy tales as a post-death resurrection. They were more concerned with melding a Jewish ethic with pragmatism and personal benefit. You might call them the first post-modernists. They dismiss the moral claims of the Pharisee, the teacher of the law of Moses, and instead engage with religious things on a purely practical level. What's it good for, you see? Don't give me the spiritual mumbo-jumbo. What's it good for? And this is a lot of modern-day very like committed, devout Jews as well. They take out, the the, the modernist takes out the element of being at enmity with God and instead uh, they want to know what's good. Not moral, but what is consistent. The challenge that Jesus poses to them is that the only way is God's way, not man's way, colored by ethics. 
And there were the zealots. These were the political activists of the day. One of the disciples was a zealot. They literally viewed all of life through a political lens. So to follow Jesus, the Messiah, is to follow the ultimate insurrectionist who just before his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, uh, just days beforehand, he raised Lazarus from the dead and un deniable, miraculous resurrection. And so Jesus, this king of the people, can raise his dead, if you will, warriors. Who can stop him? He is the ultimate political figure in the mind of the zealot because the zealots are only concerned with overthrowing the Roman government and reestablishing Israel as an independent state out from underneath their thumb. And Jesus would challenge the zealot who sees everything through that earthly national identity. God's interest is not in human revolution, but in worship. Kingdoms rise and fall. This is not God's concern. He governs all of this. His concern is your heart worshiping him. And then the fourth group is what's known as the Essenes. Again, this is the Amish of the day. The Essenes, uh, famously, you know who they are, even if you don't know who they are. It was the Essenes who established and maintained the city of Qumran, which historically is the site adjacent to where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found. So in Qumran, they made copies of the scrolls and then they hid them away so that the invading armies could not get to the scrolls and they were preserved uh, for some nearly 2,000 years before uh, those scrolls were, of course, found. But the Essenes uh, were, they were Amish in that they, they were very concerned with defilement. They don't want to be defiled by the people, uh, by the commoners, and so they retract from society. They retract and recoil into a holy huddle. Something good came from them because God is efficient. But they were concerned with preservation and separation. Very different from what Jesus said, right? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world, right? You don't hide a lamp under a basket. Salt's no good if it's not touching what needs to be preserved. And so the Amish mindset, the Essene, that retractive mindset, Jesus challenges God's concerns with the purity of heart, not a shallow purity of hand. So those are some groups that have been lurking. And as we go through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll notice various times, such as salt and light, confronting the Essenes, you'll see these challenges to these groups who are always listening. And if you're, if you're careful, if you can keep this, if you will, as like a backdrop to the sermon, you'll remember these different groups and their different persuasions, and you'll go, you'll go oh, I wonder if Jesus was saying that part for them. And it fills, if you will, in the color of the picture of the crowd gathered, listening to him teach. For me, it helps. You know, I want to see the image, if you will, in my mind. As I read the scriptures, I want to I have it play out in my mind like a movie. 
Like I'm seeing it happen. Jesus is, is sitting. Everyone else is standing because that's the posture. This is all backwards, by the way. This is kind of messed up. How come you get to relax and I have to stand up? In the ancient Jewish custom, you would all be standing and I'd be sitting comfortably. Why? Because I got the heavy lifting to do, right? I've got, you know, I got to do the hard stuff. So I should be comfortable while I'm doing it, you know? So, I don't know what to do with that, but that's what you have to imagine, all right? You got to imagine Jesus sitting, everyone else standing. Imagine these different groups. They would have been huddled up. They would have had special garments that identified them as part of that group, just like we have our garments that identify us as part of our groups, you right? There's the golfers, and there's the rednecks, right? And there's the, you know... Right? They all tend to, you know, these guys wear a Carhartt and these guys wear a Callaway, and, you know, it's not different. Only, of course, these things would have been much more deeply entrenched in their personal identity than just a hobby. That's the idea. Four main groups, and then you have the average individual who's just there, who's just trying to make a living who's just trying to get by under heavy taxation, under the, the heavy hand of pharisaical, um, if you will, burden of the law of God being placed on them incorrectly. So, enough of that. Jesus challenges the sensibilities of each of these groups. Now, week two introduction, Jesus and the law, verses 17 to 20. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Ready? Key phrase. Jesus is not the Messiah the Jews were looking for. It's critical to our understanding of the interplay between Jesus and the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the chief priests, and the average individual. They were looking for a Messiah, They believed the Messiah would come. They believed the prophecies about the Messiah. Jesus simply did not fit the mold. Here's the question. Is the mold wrong or is the Messiah wrong? Because they don't fit. Jesus does not fit the mold. In fact, not only did Jesus not fit the mold of the Messiah in the mind of the average Jew, Also, Jesus' understanding of who the Messiah is was radically different from theirs. So they had different definitions, and Jesus did not fit their definition. He didn't just claim to be the Messiah. That's not necessarily blasphemous. He claimed to be the Son of Man, quote, sitting at the right hand of power. This is from Mark 14. Jesus said, when they asked him, you know, are you, the, are you the Christ? Are you the one? Are you, he has all these different titles. And he said, I am, and you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. So we understand in this statement, Jesus wasn't just saying, I'm the Messiah. He was saying, I am God. And that is a truly blasphemous statement, deserving of death. And we see how the men who knew the scriptures best responded. They responded with outrage because it was outrageous. 
He couldn't be both born a human and also be the son of man seated at the right hand of power. He can't be both the Messiah and claim to be God, a blasphemer. He can't be both of these things in the mind of the Jew. And so the question is, whose interpretation of the Messiah are we going to side with? I mean, the the modern-day Jew still lives in this tension. The modern-day Jew, who is intellectual, committed, orthodox, moral, religious Jew, they have an interpretation of the Messiah. And then Jesus has an interpretation of the Messiah. The question is just, which interpretation are we going to go with? William Lane Craig puts it this way, why should we believe Jesus' reinterpretation of the Messiah rather than the one the chief priests and the people held? Why should we believe his version instead of theirs? It's a great question. I mean, okay, let's just stop there for a second. There were a number of men in and around the lifetime of Jesus before and after, who said, I'm the Messiah. Congratulations, right? I've arrived. Let's take down Rome, right? Let's get this ship righted. All of them were killed, including Jesus. How is Jesus any different from all those other guys? In one crucial way, he's not. They were all killed. So the only distinction, of course, as Dylan just shouted from the back, the only distinction is that one of them was resurrected from the dead. So the question isn't, is there a Jewish Messiah? Yes. Did Jesus claim to be a Jewish Messiah? Yes, along with many others. The only question is, which of this group of men, Jesus included, was telling the truth, or none of them, because they all were killed? So, the resurrection is pretty important. You see? It, it, it isn't just simply that Jesus died for your sins, because some other men claimed to die for your sins, with different names. You've been praying to Jesus, but one of these guys' name, I can't remember all of them. One of them's name was like, started with an M, McSomething, Big Mac. If Big Mac was the real Messiah and Jesus was one of the phony balonies, you've been praying to Jesus, but really you should be praying to Big Mac all this time. You see what I'm saying? And so when you read the gospel accounts and when you read Acts and you read the New Testament and you read about the apostles and their lives, these men were exceptionally concerned with the resurrection, the eyewitness account of Jesus living again. No wonder over and over again in the gospel accounts we have have issue of this, this random, seemingly random insertion that Jesus was like, hey, you got some fish? It's like, this can't be important, 
right? Jesus is back from the dead. He appears in a room. He's like, hey, what's up? And he's like, you got some fish? What? Why would the gospel writers take time in a day when letters on a page were arduous? We type them and delete them. We scribe them when we control alt, you know, make the big highlight, backspace, But no, scribing letters was an arduous task. Why on earth would they waste time saying, Jesus said, you got anything to eat? That's a silly insertion. Unless, unless the gospel writers were exceptionally concerned with the fact that this man really was raised from the dead. See, that's the key. That's what you have to understand. So, If Jesus was really raised from the dead, unlike all the other insurrectionist Messiah wannabes, then perhaps we should listen to his interpretation of the Messiah. That's the key. So let me finish again Craig's quote, and then we'll move on. Why should we believe Jesus' reinterpretation of the Messiah rather than the one that the chief priests and the people held? The answer to that is his resurrection. Jesus' resurrection from the dead is Yahweh's public and unequivocal vindication of the man whom the chief priests had rejected as a blasphemer. It is the divine demonstration that these allegedly blasphemous claims are in fact true. He was who he claimed to be. So with that, with that then we come to Jesus saying, I haven't come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. In fact, you don't understand the law and that's why I don't fit your mold. Make sense? So Jesus is breaking down how they have misunderstood who he is going to be all along. So, if you're taking notes, number one, three statements. Number one, fulfilled, not abolished. The law in Jesus was fulfilled, not abolished. One local heretic once said from the stage, a platform like this one, Jesus broke the law for love. And the people erupted in shouts and a lot of hoopla and yeah, that sounds really good. Love, love, love. Jesus broke the law for love. Which is strange because Jesus said, I I have not come to abolish the law, I've come to fulfill it. He didn't break any laws. He fulfilled the law. The word in, in the Greek is pleru. I don't know how to say it properly, but it means to complete what is already there. To complete what is already there. This is better than Jesus filling in the, the, the black outline on white paper. That's the law, and Jesus filled it in with color. No, that's a bad metaphor. To say he fulfilled the law is to say he was the missing piece that makes the whole thing make sense. That's why he is referred to as the cornerstone that was rejected. The cornerstone is the key piece of the building. The whole thing will eventually crumble without the cornerstone. So he completes what was already there. You might also say, 
Jesus come, has come to fulfill the law. He has come to clarify God's original meaning. Which is exactly what he said over and over again to the men who knew and applied the law to themselves the most. He said, you're whitewashed tombs. You're shiny on the outside and dead on the inside. You've missed God's meaning. Jesus came to fulfill, not abolish. Uh, Let's look. I'm going to ask you, in your notes, Luke 11, 37 to 52. This is the whole episode where Jesus doesn't wash his hands, and the Pharisees are like, hey, why don't you wash your hands? And he's like, you guys don't get the washing at all. You missed the whole point of the washing. It's fantastic. We're not going to read it right now. I'll have to compel you to do a little bit of homework. This is, this is the closest thing to Jesus breaking the law. He wasn't breaking the law of washing. He was breaking their misunderstanding of the law of washing. They had turned an internal law into an external obsession. To understand how Jesus fulfills the law, we must first recognize that he's not abolishing the Old Testament. He's not recommending we unhitch from the Old Testament He, in fact, this is how uh, Alistair puts it. He says, the law points us to Jesus, and then Jesus points us back to the law as a moral framework for life. Not as a burden, but as a framework. But the law points us to Jesus. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He'd be cutting his own feet out from underneath him. No, the law points us to Jesus, and Jesus points us back to the law. The law is perfect, necessary, and in Jesus it is filled up, just not the way the Jews of the first century thought it would be when Messiah comes. Fulfilled, not abolished. Number two, second statement, the law is perfect. Do not think I've come to abolish the law, verse 17, or the prophets. I've come to, I've come, not come to abolish, but to fulfill For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, which is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet, not a dot, or is it the Aramaic alphabet? It's one of them. Not not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom. You said the law is perfect. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great. Here I am teaching them. Apparently, I'm going to be called great. I'm looking forward to that because I'm called average, 5'10", 175 pounds. Average. I'll be great one day. What's Jesus saying in verses 18 and 19? He's saying, the law is perfect. I'm not come to abolish the law. The law is perfect. Jesus, though, regularly violated the traditional understanding of the law, but never the law itself. Jesus, unlike the teachers of Israel, understood the law perfectly. They were the teachers, but they lacked understanding. So, three ways that Jesus displays the perfection of the law. The first word 
is complete. He completes them. Second word is explain. He explains the law. Third word is obey. So Jesus displays the perfection of the law in that he completes the law, he explains the law, and he obeys the law. 2 Corinthians 1 20 says, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now I'm going to do something, and I'm going to do it quickly. For your benefit, don't try to write these down. Just get my notes. We found a very clever way to do this, that we can send these out like in mass group text now. It's a link to my full notes with all my references and links and everything. So, ready? For all the promises of God find their yes in him. Bible students, ready your minds. This isn't original to me. I don't know where it came from. I've heard it and I've seen it in several places. So just saddle up. From Genesis, Jesus is the seed of the woman. From Exodus, he is the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, Jesus is the high priest. From Numbers, Jesus is the pillar of cloud and fire. In Deuteronomy, he is the prophet foretold who will come who is like Moses, the mediator. From Joshua, he is the captain of our salvation. Joshua ushered the people through the waters to the promised land. From Judges, he, Jesus, is the judge and lawgiver. From Ruth, he is the kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is the trusted prophet speaking the words of God. In Kings and Chronicles, he is the reigning and good king. From Ezra, he is the faithful scribe. From Nehemiah, Jesus is the builder of the broken walls of protection. In Esther, Jesus is the Mordecai. From Job, he is the living redeemer. From the Psalms, he is the Lord, our shepherd. From Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, he, Jesus, possesses and gives true wisdom. From the Song of Solomon, he is the lover and the bridegroom. From Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. In Jeremiah and Lamentations, he is the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he is the four-faced man. From Daniel, he is the fourth man in the fiery furnace. From Hosea, he is the eternal husband, faithful to his bride, the backslider. From Joel, he is the baptizer, bringing the Holy Spirit. From Amos, he is the burden bearer. From Obadiah, he is the savior. From Jonah, he is the great foreign missionary. From Micah, he is the messenger whose feet are beautiful because he brings the, the good news. From Nahum, he is the avenger. From Habakkuk, he is the evangelist pleading for revival. From Zephaniah, he is the Lord mighty to save. From Haggai, he is the restorer of the lost heritage. From Zechariah, he is the fountain, the fountain of life. 
And from Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, arising with healing in his wings. For those of you familiar with your Old Testament, you will be able to recognize those pictures from each of those books. He is the theme of the Old Testament. That is the law, the prophets, the scriptures. It's all about Jesus. This is the great adventure of reading your Bible. It's a real history of real people in real time, and yet it is also riddled with deep and metaphorical symbolism. For those of you who were with us in the study of the book of Leviticus, you might remember that the law of God, essentially the Torah, is separated into three categories. There is the moral law, which governs heaven. That's the Ten Commandments, right? There'll be no murder or adultery in heaven because the moral law of God will govern heaven even, right? Then there is the civil or judicial law, which was given to Israel so they could function as a nation, set aside, set apart for God's purposes. And then there's the ceremonial law. That's all the washing and the feeding and the splashing and the cutting and the moral, civil, and ceremonial. Jesus completed the moral law with his perfect life. He completed the civil or judicial law as he is the victim of the Jews' final rejection, though Jesus is not a victim. That's just the terminology that's used in some theological circles. He's not a victim of a crime. He he said, no one takes my life, I freely give it. But if you will, in a negative sense, the law was applied against him. Uh, What's the word? Um, you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, well, the word, the word is wrongly, but there's a better word for it. Unjustly, I guess you might say. The law was unjustly applied to him. He had not violated it, but yet he was killed for it anyway. That's why in certain theological circles they refer to him as the final victim or the victim of the Jews' final rejection. Sorry, let's get back on track. Moral, civil, ceremonial. Jesus completed it with his perfection, the moral law. He completed the civil law as the, as the, the receiver of the Jews' final rejection of God, and he completed the ceremonial law at the cross. The veil was torn. The ceremony was complete. At least five times, Jesus claimed to be the theme of the Old Testament. Again, we're talking about Jesus completing the law. In Hebrews 10, 7, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. John 5, You search the scriptures because you think in them you will find or you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Matthew 5, 17, which we just read, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them, to complete them, they're about me. Luke 24, this is a great bit here, 24 through 47, 44 to 47. 
in two different occasions. Then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then number five, the fifth time that he explicitly said that the Old Testament is about him, he says, we read in Luke, uh, again, 24, 45. Then he, that is Jesus, opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations. See this? He opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He doesn't fit their mold. And so Jesus shows how their mold is incorrect. It's great. Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John what Jesus said, since the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it, but it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. What's that about? The law and the prophets were until John. Talking about John the Baptist. The law and the prophets were until, they were until John. And then what did John do? John came on the scene and he said, behold, the Lamb of God, right? Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There he is. The law, as Alistair said, points to Jesus, right? The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, since John's coming, the good news of the kingdom is preached. It is completed. The cornerstone has been born and is living and will go on to die and be resurrected. Luke 24, then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? This is Jesus after his resurrection with the disciples. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures, listen, the things concerning himself. When we read the Old Testament scriptures and we go, whoa, like Jesus is the lamb that was slaughtered at Passover. Death comes through, and as long as we're behind the blood on the doorposts, death can't get us. So is it, Are we reading too much into this to say Jesus is the Passover lamb? No, it's about him. So Jesus completes, then he explains. He explains. Both here in Luke 16 and 24, and then also he explains to them through the apostles. I mean, Paul writes it in Galatians 3, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our guardian, look, Paul said, until Christ came. In order that we might be justified by faith. 
But now that faith has come, we are, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. So Jesus also, not only did he explain to the disciples, but also he gave apostles to teach us how the law points to Jesus, but how Jesus completes the law. This is to say, the law can't bring anyone into justification. The law brings us to Christ, but once Christ has come, we don't need the ceremony anymore. We don't need the foreshadowing. We have the genuine article. Now that faith has come, we're no longer under a guardian. And so he explains it. Finally, of course, we know that Jesus obeys it. He fulfilled the law in his moral He fulfilled the moral law in his perfect life. This, of course, just briefly from Hebrews 4, we do not not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, look, of course, you know it, yet without sin. Sinless perfection. So he completes the law, He explains the law, and he obeys the law so that then he tells the people how to get into heaven. You think that you can keep these regulations, and it will will earn you a spot in heaven, but verse 20, Jesus says, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so that's our third statement. Entry into the kingdom. He fulfilled, not abolished. The law itself is perfect. It's all about Jesus. And then Jesus tells people how then to get into heaven. Because if the law can't get you into heaven, then how do we get in? Well, Jesus said, do better than the professionals. Right? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, the scribes, these guys were the professional holy people. It was their full-time job to just not sin. Right? I mean, essentially, like, right? Like, all of you, you guys, you guys give the church pays my mortgage so that I can be here and I can serve you and I can serve the church and I can serve the pulpit and I can pray with you, love, lead in all the different ways, right? I'm paid, if you will, to be holy. That's like, a, that's like the best example that you can think of when it comes to like the role of the scribes and the Pharisees in the life of the people of Israel. They were professional holy men. They spent their whole days just trying to not sin and applying the nuance of the law of God to their lives. If anyone was holy, if anyone was good, it was these guys. And yet Jesus just said to the full-time fishermen who can't spend his every waking hour attempting to keep the nuance of the law that you gotta do better than the professionals. If you can do better than the professionals, then you can get into heaven. And of course, the crowd goes, well, that's, it's impossible. I can't do it. And that's the whole point, of course. We don't get into heaven because we're good enough. 
But because Jesus completed or filled full the law, then in him we also do. It's a bad grammatical sentence, but that's the idea. In him we, if you will, do too. This is why Romans 8 is uh, easily just the greatest chapter in the Bible. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done what the law could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in Jesus? No, in us. How? Who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Yeah. What, what is that statement saying? It's saying Jesus did what you can't, and so by faith you can have credit for what he has done. If we are walking by the Spirit, quote-unquote, then we are fulfilling the moral law of God. But of course, we can only walk by the Spirit if the Spirit is in us. And the Spirit is only in us if He is the Lord of our lives, the Lord of all, King of my heart, King of my hand, King of my eye, King of my ambitions, King of my money, King of my free time. Do you see? He's King of all. And if He's your King... Then if he says, don't look at that, you say, yep, right? If he's your king, he says, don't waste your time, you say, yep. Why? So that he'll be pleased with you, so that he'll let you in heaven? No, he did the work. But then he turns around and says, but I'm your king. So if I say jump, you say how high? And this is the life of holiness, that the Christian is called to. Not a life of cheap grace and not a life of undue burden, attempting to earn God's favor by keeping some moral regulation. No, we obey because he's our king and he's our king because he had given to us what we could not do ourselves. This is not a moral lecture. Jesus met the demands of the law. And friends, that's the gospel. God requires you to keep the whole law in your heart and with your hand. The Pharisees could keep it with their hand, but Jesus said they could not keep it with their heart. If you're going to get into heaven, you must keep the whole law with your hand and with the intention of your heart every millisecond of your life. Jesus explained this by saying it's not enough to just not commit adultery. No, the law of God is about your heart. So even if you lust after a woman, you're guilty of adultery in your heart. And if you're guilty of one part of the law, you're guilty of all of it, according to James chapter 2, and will therefore die in your sins, unable to enter the kingdom of heaven because your righteousness did not exceed the professional moralists. And of course, the crowds in desperation, right along with us, say, well, who can get in? 
And the answer is no one. No human being deserves to be in heaven except Jesus. His resurrection is God's vindication of his perfection. So he was perfect, yet he died. Thereby experiencing the consequences of death, which were commanded over Adam and Eve, but not deserving it. So God raised him from the dead so that everyone would know he was perfect. He didn't deserve it. Now, what's all that got to do with me? Nothing, except that Jesus did all that for you and me to rescue us from the doom of being incapable of keeping God's law. All then that is required to get into heaven to be part of God's kingdom is the faith that God gives you and repentance. And that's why James, you know, Romans 5, you know, 5, uh, 9, I think, if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is Lord. If Jesus is your Lord, then you're going with him. As opposed to you being your Lord, you are king, you're going with yourself. Repentance is I'm not going where I wanna go, I'm going where Jesus says to go. He's my Lord, he's the king of the universe. He gives to me his perfection even as much as he took on himself my sin. He's my king. So for whatever reason, we didn't catch number three up there. Number three was entry into the kingdom. But that was a long time ago now. So you missed it. The law says you can't enter the kingdom without perfection. So guess what? The law says you can't come in. The cross says Jesus did it, so he gets to come in. Grace is Jesus offering to you his accomplishments by faith. See, friends, it's not merely a trite 45 minutes on, you know, how a person can be saved. It's how Jesus fulfilled the law and how critical the law is to the gospel. And therefore, there is no such thing as a New Testament church without the Old Testament scriptures. Well, with that, let's pause and pray. Lord, thank you for your word. And even now, as we turn to an extended time of corporate prayer, we pray you would hear us uh, and that our prayers would come Uh, to your ears as is foreshadowed at the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament scriptures where the incense is burned and the smoke and the aroma rises to the heavens. So too, uh, may our prayers rise to your ears, be mediated by Jesus and then offered to God the Father. Thank you for how 
your word shows us that Jesus is at the center of it all. May we not miss it, nor take it for granted. In Christ's name, amen.